0: We'll hear argument next to number 89, 1799, Jeffrey Masson against New Yorker Magazine, Alfred Knopf and Janet Malcolm. Well, your ex-clerk sure doesn't
1: draw in the business.
0: Yeah.
2: Hey, uh, uh. Mr. Chief Justice, uh, if it please the court, This is an action by Jeffrey Mason, in which he has claimed he has been defamed by publishing of defamatory quotations purportedly said by him, but never said by him. Both the District Court and the Court of Appeal assumed that the fact that the quotations were fabricated... I am assuming that this court will accept the same assumption. However, I am prepared to discuss the various factors that we introduced in addition to the fact that the the words were not on the tape. The Ninth Circuit, in making its decision, stated, one, that a fabricated quote that is wholly fabricated creates an inference of actual malice. But it went on to say, then, that fictionalized quotes will not create an inference of malice if the fictionalized quote is a rational interpretation of what the the speaker said or if it does not alter the substantive content of what the speaker said. Then they went a step further, and they said, as an example of the latter, that officialized, quote, created no inference of malice because it was consistent with the speaker's lifestyle Uh, And his idea of fun, it went further and said that it came within the same concept and uh, did not create an inference of actual malice if it was substantially the same as his own self-appraisal of himself.
3: Well, Mr. Morgan, do you take the position that every misquote gives rise to an inference of actual malice?
2: I, I take the position uh, that every misquote that is defamatory uh, and is not just a very minor uh, misquote...
3: Well, what is defamatory is typically defined under state law, right? That's
2: correct, Your Honor.
3: Not federal law. That's correct, So Your Honor. we're not concerned with that here.
2: That's correct, Your Honor. So what we deal with here... And California is interesting because in California... Uh, If a statement exposes a person, that's all it is. It doesn't have to say that he does it, or he is it, or whatever. It merely says if it exposes him to contempt, ridicule, obloquy, or if it has a tendency to harm him in his profession. Uh, And so, therefore, uh, any statement of that form uh, that is not what the speaker said, uh, in our opinion, creates an inference of actual malice. And I'm not basing that on whole cloth. We are basing that on this court's statement in Seydemont v. Thompson when this court said that professions of good faith will be unlikely to prove persuasive, for example, where a story is fabricated by the defendant or is the product his imagination.
3: Do you think the injury to reputation is different uh, when the injury occurs by virtue of a misquote than when it occurs by virtue of a characterization?
2: Absolutely, Your Honor, and and I I think that all of the amici briefs and and their documents they put in uh, point out to you that the impact when it's coming from the individual as opposed to coming from the writer's perception of the individual has a greater impact.
4: I suppose the law has always recognized that when it admits uh, an admission by a party but excludes hearsay. I suppose it's almost the same principle.
2: That's correct, Your Honor. Uh, and so obviously it has a far greater impact.
5: Mr. Morgan, what if uh, what if um, I'm, I'm in an interview with someone and I, I make some uh, statements that are very racist. I say that I think a particular ethnic group is, uh, is uh, uh, a little, little more intelligent than, uh, than dogs, uh, that they really uh, uh, can't, uh, uh, can't cope in our society, something like that. And uh, the next day there appears in the paper the quote uh, Scalia says uh, this group is subhuman. Yes, I'm familiar. That's an inaccurate quote. That's right. And, uh, is, is there liability for that? I mean, if they, had, if they had quoted it accurately, it would have been just as defamatory.
2: Well, not necessarily, Your Honor. We start with this. The person that made that statement, you know, of course, he also has the right of the freedom of speech, and the public has the right to hear exactly what he said. Now, what you are doing is you are substituting your conclusion for what he said, and yet the very words may not necessarily be the same.
5: Well, that's right, but but I'm, I'm not going to the question of malice. I'm accepting your position that all you need for malice is intentionally altering a quote. I intentionally, this is intentionally altered. There's no doubt I didn't say that, and the writer knows I didn't say that. But having overcome the question of malice, you still have the question of what's defamatory. And it's your position that that is an actual, an actionable defamation, even though an accurate quote, quote, would have harmed my reputation just as much.
2: If, if I divine what I think you're saying and, and what I think you're posing, you're really dealing with the concept of incremental harm. Yes. Uh, because you, you use the term defamatory. Uh, the minute you say something that will subject me or expose me to obloquy, right. uh, it's defamatory. But now the next question is uh, Am I harmed by it? Am I damaged by it? Because I said something that, at least in your perception, uh, is similar uh, to what they are writing. If I understand the concept, and, and my own feeling is there isn't such a concept as incremental harm, and we really haven't seen it anywhere yet. Uh, nevertheless, I am still entitled to have a trier of fact decide whether this particular one, this statement, is any different than this statement. As long as I have met all the rest of the requirements, uh, then it seems that the the trier of fact makes the decision, well, there's no harm because he said exactly the same thing. Now, that's not this case, though, Your Honor, and I think that's important to point out.
0: Mr. Morgan... uh, in any event, wouldn't any issue of incremental harm be a matter of state defamation law I rather so. than First Amendment law?
2: Absolutely. I don't think it's an issue here. I, I, I don't think that the Ninth Circuit was right in even raising it in, in this case. Uh, well, I, I
6: change Justice Scalia's hypothetical just a little? Supposing it's perfectly clear that the actual quote is much more insulting and harmful and defamatory, but yet the... What is actually said is also defamatory. Have you proved malice just by, that, by the fact it's inaccurate?
2: Have I proved malice? Yes. because And I know that we're talking about the Hotchner case, and I think it's a mistake to equate that case here. But have I proved malice? Yes. I've proved you fabricated a quote. I proved it was defamatory. Uh, now the only question is, am I entitled to any damages? Uh, who knows? Maybe I'm only entitled to $1 damages. Well, but maybe I'm entitled to X dollars punitive damages because of the manner in, in which the writer brought about this situation. Who knows on that? At least that's for the trier of fact to decide.
1: Well, whether, whether, what, uh, whether these quotes, whether they were fabricated or not, are defamatory, isn't involved in this case, is it? Uh, isn't it doesn't this case turn on malice?
2: Well, but malice requires defamation, Your Honor. I mean, in, 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 in other words, for. Well, no, I, I, I think a lot of people
1: uh, get, uh, can, can uh, defame people and not be liable because they didn't do it
2: maliciously. Well, but maliciously is the wrong word, yeah. and, and, and I say this most respectfully to this court from a man who's tried what is a number. What's the of issue here? Is it
1: whether these, this is defamatory? Are we supposed to decide whether what was said was defamatory?
2: No, Your Honor. The, the, the issue is. Did we prove enough in, in the district court yes. that the articles were written either knowing they were false or with a reckless right. disregard of the well, truth? Well, their malice policies. is
1: involved. That's what the case turns on.
2: That's correct, Your Honor. Well, that's what I asked you, and you said no. Well, then I misunderstood you, and my apologies, Your Honor.
4: Well, you don't like the term malice because for many people it excludes reckless disregard. So you like to talk about reckless disregard.
2: Y- Your Honor, all I can tell you, and, and I've seen it occasionally from the courts say that it was a poor choice of words, and I, I say this most respectfully, it's an abomination. Because I've had situations.
4: But it's our words.
2: I know, but it's, <laughs> but it's a bad word, and it's time to change it. Because I've had jurors say to me afterwards, well, I didn't see any malice. Well, in
4: any event, we're probably getting off the point. Right. I, I, I'm not. I'm not sure what interest is protected uh, by saying that there is reckless disregard for the truth by altering the quotation uh, in a way that makes it no more defamatory than, or, or perhaps even less, in Justice Stevens' hypothetical uh, than the original statement. I mean, what What are we protecting there? What?
2: Well, two things. And first, you know, the the, the concern I have here is. Uh, these words weren't as defamatory or the, as what he said. They're not equivalent, and I'll take a moment to show you one. But the answer is, what interests are we protecting? We're protecting the right of the speaker. And as you've said before, and I, it's Virginia Power or something like that that we've quoted in our brief, <coughs> that the First Amendment protects the communication, the speaker, and the public. And certainly... When we're dealing with quotations, and we're now talking about public figures and public officials, that certainly he has a right under the First Amendment to expect that he will not have a fabricated defamatory quote. And that's our
0: position. I'm not sure that's a good way to put it, to say he has a right under the First Amendment. The First Amendment applies to the government. Uh, a politician as po- relating to the New Yorker You're talking about the liability there is based on state libel law. Except that we are confronted uh, with the First Amendment.
2: First Amendment used as a shield. That's right, because he's a public figure. And so therefore, as at least he is labeled as a public figure. Uh, And so therefore, he has a right under the First Amendment to be quoted
0: as he spoke. he, He has no right as against the New Yorker magazine under the First Amendment. Well, what, what you mean to say, I think, is that the First Amendment should not prohibit state libel law from giving him that right. I will accept that, Your Honor. Uh, le- let me, let uh, me now... Under I- your rule,
4: aren't you going to create serious disincentives to use direct
2: quotes or even to have a tape recorder? No, no, Your Honor. Uh, direct quotes have been going on as long as we know they've been going on. And if you read all the material, they all tell you exactly the same thing. Quote what was said exactly. And if you can't, then don't quote that. Paraphrase it. Quote the part that you're satisfied with. Now, please keep in mind, uh, Your Honor, we're not talking about the mistake. We're not talking about the, the, the poor reporter who has to get a quote in a hurry. Uh, and then is putting it into the hot news. We're talking about a situation where... Oh,
3: well, but you are because people. you're arguing that every misquote gives rise to an inference of actual malice. That's and so the reporter who's in a hurry or whose tape gets garbled and who relies on memory um, is then at risk if the person... Uh, quoted, says, that isn't exactly what I said.
2: At risk, but not liable. Certainly, any time anybody writes, because again, we've still got the reputation to consider. This is the other, uh, the other side of this tension. And every time a reporter writes something that is defamatory, certainly there's got to be some at risk so that the reputation is protected.
5: You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't get by a motion for summary judgment unless, I take it, there was clear and convincing evidence that there was an intentional misquote. That's right. Not just clear and convincing evidence of a misquote, but clear and convincing evidence that the misquote was intentional. You're not...
2: You're Absol- not... Absolutely, Your Honor. If, if, if the reporter said, look, I did it in a hurry, I thought what I had was right, and I have no other evidence, I lose. And the chances are I won't bring the lawsuit. Now, what I would like to talk about is a couple of the quotes so I can dispel any concept that they are the same. And I want to start first with intellectual gigolo. And I think it's important to understand now. These, what the writer did, was take two different conversations, and if you look in the appendix, you will see that one conversation is take seven and one conversation is Take 12. In tape 7, he talks about his affair with the graduate student, and what he says is that you're great in the, She tells him, you're great in the bedroom, but you're a total embarrassment outside. Now, that doesn't fit any definition of intellectual gigolo, nor of any gigolo. Uh, all it, it shows is a young college kid uh, who is a total embarrassment uh, outside of his bedroom. Then, sometime later, there's another conversation in which Mr. Mason is talking about trying to get patients as a psychoanalyst. And he's complaining that, well, nobody will help him, nobody will get patients for him. And he says, uh, I, I was a, a, a private asset and a public liability because in their room they enjoyed talking to me. But because I was so junior, they would have nothing to do with me outside the room. That's not a gigolo, and it's not an intellectual gigolo.
5: He, didn't, he, didn't say, he was not quoted to say, I am an intellectual gigolo. If he, if he was quoted to say, I am an intellectual gigolo, I can understand how that is defamatory. He was quoted as saying, they treated me like an intellectual gigolo. But it was his how? words, Your Honor. Well, so but, was... but how is that defamatory? Well, but I, I guess you argue that defamation is not an issue here. No. I, can, the, can, I, the... can I think it's not defamatory and still fine for you in this case? Well, of I course not. Defamatory. Of course not.
2: No. It, I can't? It has to be defamatory. Uh, otherwise, uh, there is no basis for a lawsuit. But the point is...
5: How is it defamatory of me that somebody else treated me like an an intellectual gigolo. I don't understand. But it's
2: you who, in this fabricated quote, is saying I was like an intellectual gigolo and it never occurred. In context, it didn't
5: mean I was like one. To them, I was like an intellectual gigolo. That is how they treated me.
4: Yes, I was going to ask you the same question. It seems to me that a a reasonable interpretation of that quote is that Eisler and Anna Freud thought of him as an intellectual gigolo, and he's reporting that. I mean, that's, that's the sense in which, uh, the fairest sense, I think, in which to read that. And I wanted to ask you, number one, whether I am entitled or we must uh, parse that meaning or whether this is a question for the jury.
2: That's a question for the jury, and in California. as a reasonable
4: know, interpretation,
2: interpretation. Well, as your honor knows, if there are two reasonable interpretations one defamatory, and the other not defamatory, the court will assume it's defamatory. So we are certainly entitled to that. But I go the step further, uh, that even the fact of Mr. Mason purportedly saying, two of the highest people in in the uh, psychoanalytic world regarded me as an intellectual gigolo is defamatory, because it is going to expose him to uh, ridicule, Humiliation and obloquy, and it will certainly tend to um, uh, harm him and his business. I'd like to take two more, just if I could, and quickly. And I... The one about, um, I put it on at the end, or I tacked it on at the end. The only point I want to bring out about that one is the point, the question that supposedly he sidestepped and didn't answer was never asked of him. And Miss Malcolm concedes that. She said, no, I never really did ask him. That was just my state of mind. And yet she fabricates a whole conversation. And, and yet the, the court says, well, uh, there's been no alteration of the substantive content. It was a total fabrication. Now, this is when we get back to the Carson case where in the Carson case they talk about that uh, the writer invented this whole uh, uh, discussion between Mr. Carson uh, and the NBC officials. This is really no different. She invented a conversation that never took place. Now, the Ninth Circuit has said the rule is that it has to be wholly fabricated and I don't know of any case that really supports a wholly fabricated. What is the difference whether you fabricate one line of questioning based upon a conversation or based it upon something you read in a magazine or a newspaper, as in Carson? <laughs> then I would all... Uh, o- it, uh, it, uh,
1: every, new, every new decision is, uh, for the first time... Uh- and uh, every new decision doesn't have any precedent. So, you're, but you, so you have to say the Court of Appeals is just wrong. I do. Yeah, I've
2: I that. know you do. But it won't I, be because there isn't any precedent. I, this is one time I have no hesitation in, in saying that absolutely, Your Honor. Um, I would like to also talk uh, about the, um, the greatest analyst who, who ever lived. Uh, and again, The Ninth Circuit says this is supported uh, because uh, he made other boastful uh, statements. He never said, and you can go through all the tapes there, he never once said that the analyst will ever think he's great. In fact, he said just the opposite. And she knew all of this. And yet she fabricated this quote. Now... The Ninth Circuit says, well, it's okay, because after all, at another point, he said "Uh, analysis is going to stand or fall with me, but he points out, it's not me, it's the letters I found, the letters that question what what, uh, Dr. Freud uh, had said or done. That's the type of statements he made, and he said, there's no question. He thought his book was going to do well. He thought his book was going to be uh, harmful to the profession but he said not one analyst will stand up and speak for me and yet the quote says uh, they'll say i'm the greatest analyst after freud i'm the greatest analyst that ever lived Uh, and yet not one thing to support it but the ninth circuit says well he had boasted on other occasions i think the court can see the great harm that can befall that
5: Suppose uh, suppose what he had said was, uh, there is no greater analyst than I other than Freud. And she quotes him as saying,
2: I am the greatest analyst ever other than Freud. Oh, I think there's no problem with that, Sean. Why is there no problem with that? Because all that has happened... It's is a misquote, right? Uh, of course it's a misquote. And he,
5: let's say he intentionally misquotes it because it, it takes up less space right. that way.
2: Well, I don't think it'll take up less space. Yeah, whatever. But but all that's happened is but she knows she knows it's a misquote. Okay, uh, oh, that's right. But all that's happened is she has changed the words, but they are the same words.
5: She has changed the words. That's but right. They are she's the same moved words.
2: the sequence of them. Uh,
5: that's nice. Uh, it,
2: she's misquoting them. She's that's right. That's right. There's, there's no question now, she's misquoted. Now that
5: has to go to the jury, right? And and you say if, if under state law there's some incremental doctrine. Maybe they won't recover, but a court has to let that go to the jury. No,
2: and I'm not saying that, Well, sir. then why? Why doesn't it go to the jury? It because is clearly a misquote. Uh, as we put in our brief, and, and I, I think it's the same thing. Supposing he had said, uh, I'm the greatest analyst, and she wrote, uh, he said, I'm the greatest therapist. Uh, mm-hmm. They're basically the same thing, no change. As I understood the question you posed to me, is it, it was in
5: isolation, yes, right? Is it a misquote? Yes.
2: Why doesn't it go to the jury then? Because the words are the same, except for the one change. Ah,
5: so built, built into your doctrine then, there is some comparative. If indeed her quotation is a fair summary of what he said then, it, it shouldn't go to
2: the jury. Yes, but it's, right? not, it's, it's not because of incremental damage or incremental harm. Why? It's because of the substantial truth doctrine. Now, you see, we take the position that a a quote is no different than a a statement of fact. Um, Let me give you an example, and uh, forgive me for being from California and doing this, but I can say uh, that the reporter says, I saw Nose Tackle Carter run 60 yards for a touchdown. Uh, Or, uh, and then uh, it it quotes uh, Nose Tackle Carter, as saying, well, I I lumbered uh, for 61 yards for a touchdown. That's a substantial truth. There's nothing really changed there. That's so different.
1: He weighs 315 pounds.
2: That's right. That's that's why I couldn't resist it, Your Honor. (laughs) Uh, There's no difference. But then, uh, let me give you one that was in the amicus brief that I think is important. I make the statement, my mother and father never got married. You write that I make the statement, I'm a bastard. Now there's, there's the difference. Uh, And and
6: what if if it's just reversed? What you said was, I'm a bastard, and he wrote, my mother and father never got married. What, What do you do with that case? That's the Hotchner case. Uh, oh, and, and, and I don't know the Hodgner case. What do you do with the case yourself?
2: <laughs> well, I really don't think that you can show uh, any any damage there. And I'm hard-pressed with that one. There's no question about I it. Me, it was easy when we asked you at
6: the beginning of the argument. You said it was clearly uh, create an inference of malice. That's exactly the hypothetical Let, I get. That's right. The, the inference is still there. I'm not going to win it. So it goes that's to, to the jury, or does it not go to the it, jury?
2: I have a feeling in that one that the court would grant summary judgment, and I don't think any appellate court would... Uh, what overturn. if we
6: thought each of these was just like that? That the real facts, if you read the whole book, are even worse than the intellectual
2: gigolo. Y- Your Honor, if... If we thought that. Yeah, I mean, I if we read it carefully and we come to that conclusion. If you thought that the two statements I related were equivalent to Mr. Um, Mr. Um, Mason saying, I'm an intellectual gigolo... I'll pack my bags and leave now you know because
4: well but it's a question of your theory it seems to me you're giving away your theory i i, I had thought that the fact that it is reported someone says something about himself is indicative of of hypocrisy and is an altogether different of uh, formulation than if someone makes that same statement as a third person but you seem to be giving that away
2: well if i am i'm uh, i'm getting weary then because I don't intend to give that away. Uh, But but certainly in that situation that Justice Stevens uh, propounded, uh, I have difficulty with ultimately winning it, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I I still say we're entitled to the inference of malice.
7: Aren't you saying two things? Aren't you saying, number one, uh, that a misquotation, or the fact of misquotation in and of itself, is competent evidence of malice. Yes. Whether the question of malice goes to the jury depends on what else there is in addition to the evidence of the misquotation. Absolutely, Your Honor. If the misquotation, in fact, as you said a moment ago to Justice Stevens, could not give rise to... uh, could could not uh, be a predicate for damage, then, in fact, you're really saying on that particular misquotation in the context of the actual misquote, no reasonable juror could infer malice from it. Isn't that all you're
2: saying? Absolutely, Your Honor, and I want to sit down now because I want to save a few minutes. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mr. Morgan. Mr. Farr, we'll hear from you.
8: Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. In briefly setting out our position at the outset, I'd like to begin with what I think is an obvious point, that libel law is not concerned with misquotation for its own sake or with setting journalistic standards. What libel law is concerned with is misrepresentations of substance with the defamatory gist of things.
0: Are you, are you talking about the 50 lo- laws, the libel laws of the different states now? In
8: general, that's correct. You, all you the can libel make laws, that sort of,
0: sort of generalization? Yes,
8: I think all libel laws at bottom are concerned with misrepresentations of substance. Under the balance struck by New York Times versus Sullivan and later cases, the First Amendment gives way only when a writer knows or reasonably suspects or re- recklessly disregards that the defamatory gist is false. That's the same rule for all libel cases, whether they involve quotations or not, and that's simply the point we're trying to make here. The First Amendment protects a writer accused of misquotation unless the plaintiff can show that the writer strongly suspected that he was misrepresenting the gist of what was said.
5: Well, if I'm running in an election campaign and, I, and my opponent uh, accuses me of being a racist on the basis of some substantive positions I take, and it's arguable, I mean, it's a reasonable thing to say those positions could be based upon somebody's being a racist, uh, it is perfectly okay and not actionable if a reporter who happens to buy into that theory quotes me as saying, yes, I am a racist, there's no, co- there's, there's no, action, no action available for that.
8: If I understand the hypothetical, Justice Scalia, I don't...
5: A reasonable it. person could think on the basis of my actions and on the basis of my other statements that I am a racist. And and that's what the political debate would be about. I deny it. They, they say They say it's true. This reporter believes it. And therefore, this reporter is permitted to write about me Scalia said, quote, yes, I am a racist.
8: Justice Scalia, I think, if, if, as I say, if I understand the hypothetical, that that reflects an exaggeration of the position that I'm trying to make. I think, quite frankly, the same exaggeration that Judge Kaczynski made below. What the point that I make... My hypothetical?
5: Uh, what, what is...
8: Well, let me explain the point that I'm trying to make, if I may. Right. The point that I'm trying to make is that the inquiry... Is into whether the writer is knowingly misrepresenting something that was said, the substance of something that was said, not somebody's character in general, not their views on other issues that they were not talking about, but a, the particular subject matter that was talked about and the views expressed by the speaker on that subject matter. If there is no knowing misrepresentation, thus limited, then it seems to me that no more than there would be if there was a direct paraphrase, do you have a situation where the writer is knowingly misrepresenting the defamatory gist of what is being said?
0: So you say that a false statement by a reporter in an article such as Mr. Mason said this when he in fact did not say it cannot form any basis for inferring malice?
8: No, Mr. Justice, I don't mean to say that. What I am saying is that simply showing that there may be knowledge of different words is not itself all you need to
0: prove malice. Well, but could it go to the jury as evidence of malice?
8: It would depend on the particular circumstance. There may be circumstances in which a reporter accused of misquotation where the, the form of the accusation and the materials about what was actually said would support an inference.
4: What about knowing this, Mr. What about Justice Scalia's hypothetical?
8: I, if I understand it's hypothetical. Yes, I am you, a
4: racist. I, yes, do not understand,
8: I do not understand that there is something particular that has been said in that case
4: that is being represented. Well, I, I would suggest that the, the very, that the very circumstance that someone makes an admission of that sort allegedly, is itself a fact that is being highly misrepresented. It's, it's false.
8: If he has made an admission, if, if again, I, I'm, maybe I'm not clear on the hypothetical. What I am understanding you to say is that somebody is drawing um, a, an, an inference about character and simply inventing a quote based on that idea of character. If you say things, if, if, for example, if you say I have a strong prejudice against a particular racial group, and someone and, and you are quoted as saying that you are a racist with regard to that particular group. Then it seems to me the question is not well does that settle the malice inquiry just because the words are different and you can make an accusation that the reporter knew the words were different. The malice inquiry then turns to the question. Is there sufficient evidence from that alone, or even combined with other evidence, as Justice Souter suggests, that the writer was knowingly misrepresenting the substance of what you said?
5: Why why should it be that way? Why should should an intentional alteration of my words be at my risk? Why shouldn't the rule be, if you want to, knowingly, you you have to know that you are changing If it's a good faith mistake, that's something different but you know that you are not using my real words. Why should uh, should I be at risk? It seems to me you should be at risk. If in fact, if in fact it misrepresents me, even if you don't think it does, that's your tough luck. You should have quoted me exactly. Then you would have been sure not to be liable. But if in fact, though you think it doesn't misrepresent me, it does misrepresent me, why shouldn't you bear that burden? Well,
8: first of all, I think there there are two parts to the answer. The first part, which is the sort of legal analysis, is that I think that creates a separate malice rule for quotations as opposed to other ways of describing what somebody says, such as paraphrases, which focuses on one particular kind of falsity and not the same falsity that is the gist of the I court.
5: don't think so. Uh, if for, for misquotation, as for everything else, you must know that what you wrote is not true.
8: The question, though, is what what exactly is the gist of the action? What is the core of the action? The falsity you are talking about is simply a falsity of words. You cannot win a libel action. You cannot bring an action. You cannot base an action for defamation on simply saying the words are different. But The falsity you must show is something different.
0: But this falsity of the gist is something that you have urged, but uh, I, I don't know that our cases support it.
8: Mr. Chief Justice, I believe they do, that that certainly California law, in order to bring an action, and I'm talking about now the interest that they are pursuing...
0: But we don't have any question of California law before us.
8: Well, it is the California law that is intersecting with the First Amendment in this case. So that's correct. You don't have to decide California law, but that is what the California law represents. But if I could return to the second point I was going to make to Justice Scalia, what I suggest you're doing in saying any time you knowingly change words to the press now you are assuming the risk you essentially at this point have strict liability for anything that you do if it turns well, out I to think change the, the meaning the question
3: is a little different if if the writer entirely fabricates the language it's not a misquote it's an entire fabrication to say that uh, Mr. X said, I am a racist. That isn't what Mr. X said at all.
8: Justice okay. And a,
3: and a quote is fabricated to that effect, which under state law uh, would be regarded as defamatory. Now, is, is that fact of the fabrication of the quote uh, something that raises an inference of actual malice?
8: The accusation by itself, I think, does not. Let me suggest that the, the, the difference between... The, the, the what a,
3: quote, the intentional writing of that quoted language, knowing that it was not said.
8: I think it does not by itself raise the inference of malice as I believe it is correctly interpreted. And Let me give you an example of what I mean from this case. In his complaint... And this is at page 260. This was the original complaint. Petitioner alleged that he had been quoted as saying, analysis stands or falls with me now. This is at at the bottom of page 260. And he says, in truth, Mason never said such. So he is accusing Janet Malcolm of a total fabrication with this quote. Now, fortunately it turned out that we had absolute evidence of this quote because this quote was on the tape, that he said exactly these same words. But let us assume for a minute that we were in the posture we are with several of the the quotes that are still at issue here, that all that we had was notes representing the substance of this quote. He would be saying right now that he is entitled to go to the jury Simply based on his denial of those words, even though in fact we have undisputed evidence that on that particular subject about his place in psychoanalysis, he said not only analysis stands or falls with me now, but we also have evidence that he said substantially equivalent things. I suggest that looking at that evidence, which we would not be able to look at under petitioner's rule, negates any inference that the writer could have knowingly been trying to misrepresent the substance of his views on that particular subject.
7: Why don't you get to look at the evidence on the question of damage? It is, well... The 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 evidence would come in on the subject of damage?
8: It might, but I'm saying on the subject of malice, I believe it ought to come in on the subject of malice, because the, the, the balance, I believe, struck by New York Times versus Sullivan between state libel law and the First Amendment is one that looks at knowingly misrepresenting substance, not simply knowingly misrepresenting words. And his rule essentially would take that case that I just used based on an accusation of misquotation and move that case to the jury.
5: You have no, I mean, I don't see this distinction between knowingly misrepresenting substance and knowingly misrepresenting words. It is knowingly misrepresenting substance to say that I said something which you know I did not say. The substance is, did I say it? I
8: did It not is knowingly, I mean, in, in that hypothetical case where the, where the writer, in fact, is proved to have known of the misrepresentation, it arguably, I suppose, could be said to be substance, but not defamatory substance. That's what I'm saying. That, that is what the actual malice test in every other circumstance focuses on. If, if I can use an example of a paraphrase, let's say that instead, take, take the particular quotes here, any one you want, sex, women, fun, perhaps. Let's say that the sentence read exactly the same way it reads now, except instead of putting quotation marks around the word sex, women, fun, it was a paraphrase that said, Jeffrey Mason said that if he lived in the Freud house in London, he would turn it into a place of sex, women, fun, period. No quotation marks. The standard for evaluating actual malice in that case, with the paraphrase, would be, did the writer knowingly change the defamatory substance of that statement? And given other statements on exactly the same subject, not things showing his character generally, but on exactly that same subject, what would he do if he lived at the Freud House in London? It's clear there would be no misrepresentation. I don't
0: think think your your point of view makes enough allowance for the fact that Putting words in someone's mouth as having said it themselves can hit a lot harder than having some third person describe what they think the person said.
8: Justice Rehnquist, I think that is true, but perhaps less true than it seems at first blush. I think that usually the most potent effect out of attributing something to a speaker is that you're attributing the content of what he says to the speaker, that he says something derogatory about someone else. It's not normally
5: the particular choice of words. No, it, what 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 makes the difference, Mr. Farr, is that you, as the writer, you you take yourself out of the picture. When I read a statement, he said that, and it's 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 under it's uh, over your byline. I say, well, that's Farr's interpretation of it. But when you said he said quote, then I say, gee, that's. He, he said that. That's, that's not far as out of the picture now. This is what the individual said. That is a big difference. I I, I no longer make allowances for your erroneous judgment. You, you are asking me to, to eliminate any possibility of your erroneous judgment. You're saying this is what he said, quote.
8: But the question, I, as I understood the chief justice to ask it, isn't the fact that words are attributed to somebody much more powerful. That is the idea of a quote. I think there are two different circumstances that have to be compared and kept in mind. First of all, the words are attributed to him, but other words could be attributed to him, let's say, undisputedly, that would have the same power. So, for example, let's say, instead of saying (coughs) sex, women, fun, with regard to how uh, he would conduct himself at the Freud house, he was quoted as saying myself and another psychoanalyst analyst, would pass women around to each other, and we would have a wonderful time, and we would, we would open it up. Joey didn't know how to involved. use the
0: word myself. <laughs>
8: <laughs> well, I can't lay that on him. I think it shows I don't know how to use it. <laughs> but in any event, I think the power of the sentence would be from the content of the sentence in that particular case. And the fact that he holds those views, that's what, in fact, he would do if he went into something that is now a place of scholarship. The particular choice of words in that particular situation wouldn't make any difference. There may be situations where a paraphrase would be different from a quote, because depending on the nature of the paraphrase, it would put a filter in there. And there may... Excuse me.
1: Suppose uh, the writer, as you just suggested, would write and say, he said, wine, women, and song, uh, uh, <clears throat> and he got sued for it. Now, the plaintiff's burden of proving falsity would go no farther than proving that he didn't say that.
8: His the, the Under the
1: plaintiff's theory... Yeah, he, he, he says, I'm suing you because... You said I said something that I did not. I don't care whether it's on quotation marks or not. I didn't say that. And and his burden, he's suing because you misrepresented what he said. And his burden of proving falsity will go only to proving that he didn't say it. He wouldn't have to prove the, the falsity of the content. Justice White, I believe he would. I, if I understand oh, your Oh, you question. mean he, he would? He, he really wouldn't. Uh, he really wouldn't. If he had that house, uh, do what he was. What the reporter said, he would.
8: Right. That, I'm sorry. He would have the burden of proving both that he would not do that and that
1: the reporter you knew that he would not do You think, think he would that. have to prove that? But he's only suing because he's he's. Uh, uh, He's been misquoted, and he's so going to I, claim that that's disruptive. Excuse
8: me, I've misunderstood that. I don't think he has to prove what his conduct actually would exactly, be in the Freud act. Exactly. I'm sorry, if,
1: if that's... Exactly.
0: What, yeah, but what he
8: would have to do if he sued, let's say under, my, uh, under the hypothetical I was using, if he did sue and say, this misrepresents what I said about what I would do, he would have to show that he did not in substance say that. That's what he would have to do. And his malice inquiry would turn on that substance, not simply on whether there was a difference in the words. But, Mr.
4: Farr, we have here self-evaluative statements or alleged statements. Greatest analyst, uh, honorable man, intellectual gigolo. Now, these are quotations of a markedly different character if they're attributed to oneself. It's far different Uh, If someone says, I am a racist, then for a third person to say, he is a racist, that's far different.
8: That's correct, and I, I, I don't dispute that. We are not suggesting, Justice Kennedy, that in determining whether there has been a knowing misrepresentation of the substance of what someone said, that you could use words said by somebody else about him, as part of the question as to whether there was a knowing misrepresentation of substance. What I'm suggesting, perhaps it would be helpful at least if I indicated what I think the proper way to go about the inquiry is, because I think it will show that we're not, for example, talking about as broad a theory as I think were, were uh, attributed to us. Um, the, it seems to me that when someone accuses a reporter of misquotation, that the proper malice inquiry is to look at the substance of all of the things that the person has said, particularly to that reporter on the subject, then you would take the disputed parts, because I'm assuming we're at the summary judgment stage, the disputed parts and the undisputed parts, and make a comparison between them. If, based on that comparison, One could draw a conclusion that the addition of the disputed words will carry an inference that there is a knowing change in the overall substance of what he said,
5: then it seems to me that you could draw an inference of actual malice. Put it differently, if a reasonable person could have given the words that interpretation, even though another reasonable person might not have given them that interpretation, putting it in quotation marks is okay. Right. All it has to do is be a, a, a reasonable interpretation of the words.
0: I, I right? mean and be... there would
5: be no liability then, so long as it's one of many reasonable interpretations. To put it in quotes.
8: I don't mean to be ironical, but I don't think that's a reasonable interpretation well, of what I said.
5: I uh, thought I thought that that's what. But I thought that's what the test is. When you have to show that to, to show malice, Milkovich. don't you have to have knowing knowing distortion? You do have to have knowing distortion.
8: But I don't understand why the mere rational interpretation test would necessarily protect. How from can that. I show knowing distortion
5: cases. if that is one of several reasonable interpretations of the words? I, how can I possibly prove knowing distortion? It's not the only interpretation, but it is one of several reasonable ones.
8: Well, I, I mean, I suppose I guess it depends on, on the other issues. I mean, it seems to me that the basic test as I say, is whether there is a sufficient evidence of a knowing misrepresentation of substance. I think that's what the proper inquiry should be.
0: Could uh, in the eyes of a reasonable juror. Pardon me? In the eyes of a reasonable juror.
4: That's correct, if we're talking about the summary judgment. Mr. Farr, in 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 this case, if we take your test to take all of the substance of what was actually said and compare it to all of the substance of what was quoted are the use of quote is the use of quote marks one of the factors that we may take into consideration
8: again if i understand the question i think it would be i would think let me take an example so that at least what what i'm thinking of may become clear if There are cases, I believe, where a choice of words would be so out of character for the plaintiff or would reflect so differently on his character than the content of what was being said that there may be an additional defamatory gist out of that word, that choice of word itself. The, the type of sort of trivial example, I guess, that occurs Mr. to me. Mr. Fry, you're giving us an example Square. of
6: what would constitute clear and convincing evidence of malice. It seems to me they're two separate questions. One is whether every misquote is competent evidence of malice, as Justice Stewart uh, Souter points out. It would seem to me that the mere fact that there's a misquote and they knew it, that's some evidence. Maybe it's not strong enough to go to the jury or clear and convincing. But then the second case is whether is it strong enough to constitute clear and convincing evidence. I think your argument is no evidence at all. Justice Stevens, I don't mean
8: that to be the argument. What, what Perhaps I can be clearer by saying I, I agree with both parts of what you say. What I am emphasizing... I suppose, with regard to the first part, is that it is important, I think, to understand what the inquiry is, what it is that we are looking at the words for, and that is all I'm saying. I think that the purpose of looking at the words is to determine whether there is a knowing misrepresentation of what I keep calling the gist. The fact that there is a difference in words by itself, if you don't connect it to that other inquiry, I think means nothing. I think once you connect it to that other inquiry, then I think it is relevant.
6: Well, you can't say it means nothing if it's admissible or confident evidence. It's just not sufficient. I don't think you can correctly say it means nothing. Well, The I very don't... fact of misquotation means something. Your opponent concedes that there are lots of misquotations that are not sufficient to go to the jury. So I don't, I'm not sure you don't, couldn't really agree on that and not decide this case. And that that it certainly is competent evidence, I would think, to show that the the, the quote was different from what was actually said. But that's very different from an example of saying, I am a racist and he never said anything.
8: All right. Perhaps I I stand corrected. I I think I see a distinction there, but but I don't feel that I need to defend that distinction to to answer the point you're making.
7: May may I? I'm sorry. Of course, yes. I didn't mean to interrupt you. May I try the distinction? It seems to me in your argument you've posited three different kinds of situations, or we all have, I guess. Number one, you got a third-person quote uh, and uh, a misquote attributed to a third person. you got a first-person quote uh, and a misquote attributed to the first person. And the third example is you've got a third-person quote, or at least third-person evidence, and you misattribute that by means of a first-person quote. If I understand you, you're saying that when we've got simply the misquotation as between two third parties, the mere fact of the misquotation may be, as I was trying to say, competent evidence of malice, but it is not sufficient in and of itself, as an abstract matter, uh, uh, to, to rise to the level of clear and convincing evidence of malice. Is that a fair statement?
8: Depending, perhaps, on, on the amount of difference, right. but generally that's correct. Right.
7: Okay. Likewise, you've been arguing, I think, that when there are, uh, when we're, we're talking about differences between two first person quotes, you're saying, I think you're conceding again, yes, a misquotation can be some evidence of malice, uh, but it is not enough to go to a jury because unless it is just an absolutely egregious example uh, that totally changes the substance. Uh, it it could not rise to the level of clear and convincing. That's correct. Justice Scalia's example is the third-person quote, or we'll say just the the, uh, non-first-person evidence, which is suddenly placed by means of a misquotation into a a statement, in quotes, attributed to the first person. His argument was, when that statement misattributed to the first person is defamatory. Isn't that enough, in and of itself, to constitute sufficient evidence for a clear and convincing finding? What is your answer to that?
8: Um, I guess. It, I'm not- and, take, and take
7: his example. I am a racist. When when he never said he was a racist, isn't that uh, sufficient to go to the jury, uh, in and of itself, as clear and convincing?
8: I may be having more difficulty than I should in keeping the categories apart. At least what I'm thinking of is is I understand that Justice Scalia's quotation, I mean, hypothetical, is more the second situation. I mean, at least that's what I think we are dealing with in this case, is the situation of first-person quotations. I don't see in this case a situation where the person being quoted has not addressed the subject of any of the quotes we're talking about here. He clearly discussed what he would do at the Freud House. He clearly discussed how Anna Freud and Dr. Eisler viewed him. He clearly discussed the other things that are being presented. So it does not seem to me here that you have a situation where you were reaching out to something and saying, I'm going to bring in substance from somewhere else and attribute it to this person. What it seems to me this case involves is... is the case where the reporter says, I am dealing with the views of Jeffrey Mason on this subject. Here is what I represent him as having said. Jeffrey Mason, like many plaintiffs, claims he was misquoted. And I believe the right inquiry is on the actual malice standard. In that case, is there clear and convincing evidence that by representing what he said on this subject, or these subjects, the writer was knowingly trying to misrepresent what he in fact said. And all I'm saying
5: is that... And it's your position that if not, if the writer knowingly misquoted, but thought that in the writer's opinion, that was a fair representation of what the person said, there's no remedy on the part of the person who is put in quotation marks.
8: But libel law does not provide that remedy, Your Honor. I am saying that that is the balance struck in New York Times versus Sullivan between knowing misrepresentation of substance and the law of libel of the various states. New
5: York Times versus Sullivan had absent a knowing, one knowing lie, namely the lie that the person actually said that. That is a lie. What New York Times said is if... You did not have any knowing lie at all. You thought everything you said was, was the truth. Then, there's, then there cannot be a remedy under the First Amendment. But here you do have one unquestionable lie. You know that that quote was not uttered.
8: Well, let me back up a step. New York Times versus Sullivan also said, of course, that threat of sanctions in many cases is almost as chilling as the sanctions themselves. Here you have the threat of that coming out of any accusation of misquotation. The the issue of whether it's deliberate or not simply is part of the accusation.
0: Thank you, Mr. Farr. Mr. Morgan, do you have rebuttal? You have two minutes remaining. All I need is a minute, Your Honor. Uh, Following up on
2: that subject, the knowing lie creates the inference of malice. The question of the substance...
6: Does it create clear and convincing evidence of malice in every case? Uh, yes, sir. Uh,
2: you... <laughs> I don't want to go through it because I haven't got that much time. But what I wanted to add was the next step is the element of damage. The substance argument comes only into the element of damage. Now, again, the knowing lie that's defam- the Even in
6: your 80-yard run case, it's clear unconvincing evidence of malice. No, that's right. All right, then you don't mean what you said. Right. Thank you, I Thank you, Mr.
0: Morgan. The case is submitted.
2: The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.